Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London. Today on the podcast, I am joined by director Patrick Bryce. He has a new movie out, a Netflix horror movie called There Is Someone Inside Your House. Awesome horror movie. I remember when he told me the premise, which I'm not going to spoil, a few months ago, I was like, fuck, that's terrifying. And yeah, check it out. It's on Netflix now. He's also made the fantastic horror movies Creep, part one and two, with Mark Duplass. We get into that. Yeah, great chat. We spoke about Carve Zahedi who is his teacher, which is hilarious. The great singer-songwriter Jason Molina getting bad reviews. And yeah, he's a deep guy. He's a sensitive guy. Great filmmaker. Here's me and Patrick Bryce. things with you i'm good man i'm like uh uh i'm like i'm in that weird spot where like the movie's about to come out next week and then the reviews are coming in and i just got a like c minus from david ehrlich at indiewire uh who's like like i don't have a lot of people that like say mean things about me i think in the on the on planet earth but he's one person who's consistently said mean things about me <laughs> how do you how do you process that i got my first um freestyle review on my podcast i i think he's just been friends giving me five stars and saying nice things and i got my first freestyle and it kind of haunted me for way too long yeah i think it's I don't know. It's weird because it's like I felt like. About, are we recording? By the way. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, we can cut this out if you want to keep this shop talk out of it. Oh, it's totally fine with me. I don't care. Okay, cool. I think it's actually important, you know, to for people who make stuff to think about because it's something that you do have to like reckon with or process at some point, you know. Um, and it, it's just funny to like make stuff right yeah and then put it out in the world and spend all this time thinking about it and going over it and like for this movie it was like a two-year-long process because of the pandemic you know and so to like work on something for two years and then especially something of like this scale where you're kind of having to like facilitate you know not only the opinions of other people but like a corporation yeah (laughs) you know and like put something out that has some kind of life to it or resembles something that you would want to actually put out in the world, despite those circumstances. And then at the end of that, at the end of that, you know, have a a critic from IndieWire just go, meh, you know, it's like, God, 
Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where like, I think it's really healthy to not think about it at all. Like, I wish I could be one of those people who don't think about it at all, but I'm also like someone who grew up reading film criticism. And that's like one of the reasons why, you know, that like reading, reading film criticism and reading, writing about movies in general is like half the reason I love movies, not just the movies themselves, you know? Right. Like, I love the conversation. It's why that's why I went to film school. Like I didn't go to film school necessarily necessarily to like learn how to make movies i learned how to I, I learned like why i wanted to make movies at film school you know interesting who are your critics that you admired critics that i admired i mean c- currently i i love as samara have you read his stuff yes he's he, i think you know he's maybe the only person that is sort of taking that extra step back that i think is necessary when you're looking at who is making movies and why movies are being made right now and like and 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 sort of relating it all to capitalism like bringing it all into like you know this this kind of specter that looms over all of this of like you know why is it that only certain people get to make movies well certain people are maybe rich kids and have access to money or certain people are maybe not rich kids and you know have been able to like weasel their way way in somehow and some people have been able to go to film school and some people haven't and then like who's giving you money is it a place like netflix or is it like some random crazy billionaire or something you know um and so i just really appreciate his like his 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 uh his approach because i think it's honest in a way that i think a lot of film criticism like contemporary film criticism isn't like you know when you get a a a c minus from indiewire like yeah like it like hurts for like two seconds but then it's like indiewire's you know you just indiewire's like a trade like a fake trade clickbait website you know what i mean and like who gives a fuck at the end of the day and that's just another thing that's gonna get sucked up into the the abyss of the internet in five minutes (laughs) you know what i mean so yeah it's like and it's important i think too to like to 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 i don't know to look at stuff like that whether it's positive or negative because like i i think a real revelation for me like outside of you know just being like excited by the fact that I'd be making something that would be getting re- reviewed by someone like, like as someone who like grew up reading, yeah, you know, Roger Ebert actually was like the first one that I read on a consistent basis. And that's just cause like, that's, that was what was, who was, that was, who was, what was available to me, you know? And, um, you know, so like outside of the kind of like, uh, you know, sort of surprise and like fun and like sort of, you know, uh, uh, of, of, of the idea of like, oh, I can make something that would be criticized by someone, or I can make someone something that could be interpreted by someone like outside of that initial, like fun of it, I guess, like whether it's good or bad, it just doesn't, it like, it doesn't affect me because it's like, it's just, it's, it's, it's literally someone coming to you at the end of a long journey where you've been on like the hero's fucking journey where you've Mm -hmm. like cried you've beat your head against the fucking wall. You've gone through the fire of, of having to make something and especially making a film, which, you know, as you know, is like just a multifaceted fucking crazy thing where like you're having this, you know, solo experience of either writing or, you know, 
conceiving something and then you're having this insane collaborative group experience of production where you're making something, you know, with like a hundred people and, you know, uh, in the case of my last movie. And then, so to come at the end of that journey and have like one person go meh or whatever, it's just like, okay, buddy, great. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I've got, you know, I, I'm living with the battle scars of what I just experienced, you know, like it's, uh, so anyway, so that's, it's just, it's just, it's, and it's also helpful to, I think, have another thing going or have other stuff to be focusing on, you know, when you do get that feedback too, because it's just like, you can't do anything about it. You can't, you know, it's like the, 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 the cake is already baked and it's out of the oven, you know? That's why I used to like Pauline Kale when she totally set up the pre-ramble of the fear, uh, the type of audience, the kind of, you know, the person next to her eating popcorn and stuff. Yeah. And she's someone, she's someone who had like a super complicated relationship with filmmakers too, right? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Did you ever see the documentary where she hosted that dinner party and brought around David Lean? No, no. There's a section of a documentary where Dave, David Lean, it's one of the saddest things I've ever seen. It's like David Lean, this cute old British man, was just saying that he got invited around to dinner with her and a few other critics and directors. And she just said, why did you make that piece of shit? It was just <laughs> unbelievably bad. And just tore into him for like half an hour. And I think she, he said... um. I think he tried to back out, change the subject a little bit from destroying uh, Lawrence of Arabia and said, I think my next one will be black and white. And she was like, good, you don't deserve color. Oh my God. And it just haunted him for, for so many years. <laughs> and he was, just like, I he was just like, I don't really understand why she brought me here just to insult me and tear me up for an hour. And even, even the other guests were like, dude, leave the guy alone. You know, he, he, he went big. He tried something huge and even he should be applauded for that. Yeah. Even if it's not a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I also like appreciate, I, I, I don't know, like I would take that over like a middling, you know, review of something. Any, I would take a harsh fuck you. You destroyed me by making this movie over a like whatever review any day of the week you know because at least there's passion behind it and at least like it's like i don't know for her it just felt like uh just a continuation of her personality and like i, I and i love it that she was able to kind of be just like a a, a tumor in all these filmmakers brains where like <laughs> yeah. you know pauline kale's in the back of their head this like you know very this woman who's extremely hard to please <laughs> you know yeah and you'd never know which way she was going to go on things oh for sure yeah which is kind of exciting i saw you on carve's marathon fundraiser who's your film teacher in film school 
he was he was the first ever film teacher I ever had. The first time I ever walked into a classroom, Kaveh Zahedi was my my teacher. Lol. Was have you seen his recent um films where he's teaching? Yeah, you mean the scenes from the show about the show? No, he's got two new films where he's he's made one with his film class. Oh no, I haven't. Oh, that's what I was going to ask you. Was it is it anything like that? Where? I mean, I'm sure it is. He there's a film that he made that is. I think it's. I don't know if it's online, but it's available in that really amazing box set, that super comprehensive box set that Factory Twenty Five put out a few years ago. Um, that he made. I think like like a year after I took his class. That's it. It, it was it was released as part of a compilation of films about September 11th. I don't know if you've seen that film. No. And it's the film is him. The film is basically him having an argument with one of his film students. And it's kind of wild uh, because like basically Kave is trying to do this kind of like move. It, 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 I think it was even pre September 11th. I forget what it has to do with September 11th, but it's, but it's like, he's do Kaveh's having the students do some kind of like movement therapy <laughs> or something. And like one of the guys refuses to do it. And then Kave decides to turn it into a confrontation um and i I don't i mean i don't know if kave would agree with that (laughs) take on it but that's the way it felt to me you know i i think one of the things that was really interesting there was a recent article about him that his girlfriend wrote that was released in believer i don't know if you read that yeah i read that and it was kind of a trip because i didn't like you know the, the title of that was in past tense why i loved kave zahedi and it felt like a like a breakup you know mm. uh uh article about a breakup but then during that telethon i she was there the whole time and they're still together and he referred to his, her as his girlfriend so i think there's more to be said there but but one of the things she said in it that i think is really true is you know he's he's one of these people who you know kind of preaches radical honesty and tries to live his life in a way that's so honest that it you know ends up destroying a lot of his relationships and she pointed out that he actually loves confrontation and he loves using honesty sometimes as a way to needle people and sort of be a rascal you know and i definitely felt that (laughs) as a film student and you know for me it was really important i think in in terms of like the trajectory of not not just my like film my life and and how i related to filmmaking but my 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 life as an artist and sort of you know uh i I think just important to have like my first experience in a classroom be with someone who was so uh, at the time what felt like you know contrarian and felt like you know someone who like he would always question us and question why we wanted to make the films we wanted to make in ways that I was just not expecting. Like I hadn't really like had like the opposite. Like I had never really had like a super inspirational teacher or anything, you know, like I dropped out of film school or high school. I dropped out of high school my junior year. And I, you know, it's partly because I hated it. I was going to school in a small, small town and it was just, it was just not, my parents were divorced and and I wanted to get out. And so I moved to San Francisco and, uh, you know, I think having, ha- you know, showing up, being excited, finally being in this place where I get to like, 
make movies or learn how to make movies and then immediately being confronted with this guy who you know made these move made these just movie you know as personal as you can get these Mm -hmm. these films that were all an extension of his own life and himself uh and uh and then not only that he's supposed to be teaching us about like traditional narrative filmmaking you know in like a film production 101 class but yet we're watching you know a little stiff the first day and like uh you know watching this movie that he you know cast himself and the other and and, you know and and this girl that he had a crush on and her boyfriend as as themselves (laughs) replaying this you know event that happened when he was in college and it was funny because at the time I think uh, it was like I don't know like I viewed that as like oh Kaveh wasn't able to like crack it as a big time filmmaker so he's having to teach and he's you know stuck making these kind of movies and I think it was really good to like that you know that was my initial sort of reaction and then it was good to like go through school and you know it really wasn't until I started to make my own stuff that I realized what just how what a beautiful anomaly it is that he's doing what he's doing the way he's doing it and that and that there's really no other path for him like this is what he was put on this earth to do and you know when you watch his stuff you can't help but think about your own life and how you how you you know uh, treat other people in your life and how you spend your time and your relationship to your own art if you make stuff you know and you i for me like i just can't help but be inspired by it and to see his growth as a filmmaker too has been so beautiful and wonderful and it was like like seeing the show about the show and you know despite the fact that that's a movie or a show that seemed to like you know mark the end of his marriage and and you know and all this stuff i at the same time it's like i think just i think it's his most accessible piece of work that he's ever made and it was so exciting for me to see that and and realize that like folks are going to watch this who were maybe unaware of his his work beforehand and hopefully have this like nice inroad into the rest of his stuff which is just kind of, i don't know for me just like a blossoming flower i i I have endless respect and love for him. Yeah, show about the show I keep on thinking about because it's so smart, so meta. I get lost when I try and piece together how he's made it and how he's recreated the scenes of people reacting scenes they've just had. But also, if I turn my brain off from that, it's just so fun and accessible and smooth and enjoyable to watch just that yeah. almost on a level of how much i'd enjoy just watching a really great episode of seinfeld or curb yeah but with no, a I lot think... more a lot more balls yeah that's a great comparison you know because well, you know what larry david does like the core of what larry david does is tell truths you know and i mean he's able to do it uh you know through like the ciphers of the of the (laughs) the the Seinfeld crew and then you know even more personally through through Curb and yeah Kaveh is like an extra extra you know sort of step towards like core honesty like he's literally presenting himself 
naked and as you know with all all of his flaws intact you know just welcoming judgment uh and you know i think when he does get criticism it's from people who are like you know saying he's like a masochist or he's he's you know he's someone who like he he wants negative attention so like why would you why would you do that if you didn't want negative attention you mm -hmm. know what i mean and yeah that might be part of it but like so what <laughs> you know so fucking what like at least someone is doing that you know and 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 maybe maybe you know you have to cut through that messiness to get to 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 that truth and some people are unable to to get past that to appreciate you know what's good about it but you know i think um at least for me personally like i would rather watch a a cave zahedi movie than you know like i've never seen an avengers movie but <laughs> you know <laughs> oh, than a marvel yeah. movie yeah. any day of the week <laughs> Even when he did his Kickstarter and it, he was like, um, I'm raising money for season three. So here's the first episode of season four. I was like, what the fuck? What? And then at the end, he was explaining it like, no, I need to make season. I can't even explain it. When he was like, I'm making season, I need the money for season three. And then that's going to spark season four. So here's the first episode of season four. And I was just, I couldn't process it. Yeah, I get a headache. Maybe, maybe I just have a really illogical brain. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like when I, you know, if I, if I were to sit down and really try to think about like Inception and all the layers of that movie and like, I like, I feel the same way watching the show about the show. Whereas like, I just kind of let it wash over me, <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, what's, what's crazy about Cave too, and what's like cosmic about Cave is also how he related to and, and, uh, basically like two, two of the most important book collaborators and mentors that I've had in my life. And one of which is uh, Tom Anderson, uh, who directed Los Angeles Plays Itself. Yes, I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, so Tom was my mentor at CalArts when I went to CalArts. And when I was work, when I was, you know, living in San Francisco and had had taken classes with Cave, but like had had moved on, I went back and, and saw Cave, and we were hanging out. And I was telling him that I was planning on moving to Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, I was, I was helping him with some projects. And one of the projects was he wanted me to digitize a bunch of footage of uh, early Edward Moybridge uh, animations. Uh, you know, some of those like the earliest, basically the earliest, you know, uh, the, the earliest animation ever made, basically the first case of animation, you know, the, the Edward Moybridge photographs that would be then set to motion. And um, I didn't know this at the time. I thought this was just a weird tape that I was being given by Kaveh. He wanted me to digitize these so that he could make a music video, a bootleg music video of uh, the Talking Heads song Born Under Punches. Right. He spoke about this on his um, Awkward Celebrity Encounters. Oh, really? I think only that he was trying to pitch. There's a really funny, not to cut you off, but he, he had a funny story where David Byrne wanted, you know, he wanted to give David Byrne a tape. 
And then David Byrne said, this is great, but how am I going to watch it? Because I'm going to Paris, so I need it on like a PAL format. And then Carve tried to convert it to PAL and then send it to him. And then he rang him again. He's like, but how am I going to watch this? I'm, I'm in New York now. I need an NTSC in it. Like this whole... <laughs> That's really funny because like, it, you know, it was something he asked me to do. And like, I'm not a tech guy. Like, I'm not like, that's never been my, <laughs> my forte. So like, I had to like, you know, like totally jerry rig my VCR to like my old PC and digitize this footage. And I brought it to him on a CD and he was like, great. And that was kind of the end of that. But what I didn't realize is that footage was cut from this film that Tom Anderson had made called Edward Moybridge Zooprexographer, which is the first documentary ever about Edward Moybridge. And there's, you know, there's no like interviews in it. It's narrated by Dean Stockwell. It's a really interesting movie because it's kind of about like it's kind of presenting Moybridge as almost kind of a failed artist. You know, Moybridge is a complicated guy, right? He like murdered his wife, I, I think, and got away with it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, Tom spent, I think three or four years making this movie where he animated all of those images. He's the first person that, that like actually put them in motion on film, you know? And, uh, and it wasn't until I got to CalArts and ended up with him as my mentor that I put two and two together after he screened that movie that I had <laughs> cut up footage from that movie. And I remember going to Tom, who's, uh, you know, kind of a, a serious guy <laughs> and telling him that Kaveh had had me <laughs> cut all of this footage out of his movie. And he literally like just looked at me and he said, uh, well, he shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> uh, but Tom, Tom was really, you know, just after after Cave, Tom, Tom was by far the the, I would say one of the most important people to come into my life as a filmmaker, just because, you know, when I did get into school, uh, and and you know went to Cal Arts, I was an older student. I was a twenty five year old undergrad and I was finishing my degree and I was still not really sure what kind of movies I wanted to make. I, I, you know, I was mainly interested in documentary, or at least that's what I thought, you know, I, I wanted to do. And so having a mentor who is, you know, uh, I think, you know, one of the great film essay documentarians was, was really exciting to me. And the first thing he said on our first day of school with me and a couple other of his mentees was, you know, one of the great things about movies or the, the thing I love about movies is you can kind of be interested in everything. It's sort of a, a doorway to, to any subject you want to cover in any way. And that's, that's a comment that sort of has stuck with me with every single thing that I've made. Because, you know, it, it's allowed me and given me the freedom to not like, uh, I don't know, think of each movie as like the end all be all of my career. It's like, no, this is just a moment in time where I'm getting to focus on this one thing um, and uh, process this one aspect of humanity or the human experience, you know, and, uh, and then I get to move on and be excited about something else and explore something else through through this medium you know 
And um, so it was really important for, for him to come into my life, I think then, because, you know, it was literally like someone who took this extremely seriously, but also saw a multitude of paths within it. And, and that was normal. And so like, I didn't have like, I don't know, the pressure that I think a lot of film students have when they take a more traditional path, like at USC or UCLA or whatever, or NYU even, where it's like so production focused and it's just about like, you know, like the right kind of lingo on set and, you know, stuff like that. Like I sort of like, you know, I took a more like wild and woolly path coming, coming through CalArts, which, you know, which like I had people like Tom Anderson and James Benning, you know, and Betsy Bromberg and um, uh, Alan Sekula and, you know, these sort of like just straight up artists, you know, uh, teach, teaching us. And, and, um, and it's, it's a, it's an experience I've like taken with me as I like, you know, moved through my professional life and, uh, uh, you know, it was really important. And then besides Tom, the other person that Kaveh knew that I think was a connection that I didn't realize would be as important as it was at the time. When I told him I was moving to Los Angeles, I remember him just kind of like looking off in the distance and saying, you should, you should hook up with the Duplass brothers when they're, when you're down there. He's like, those guys are, those guys are pretty great. And he was close, closer with Jay than he was with Mark, but he's like, they're, 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 they're great people. And they, they, they might help be able to help you out. And, you know, I didn't really think much of it. I hadn't seen their films yet, any of them really. Um, but uh, after I did move to LA and uh, moved in actually into the apartment of James Laxton and Adela Romanski, who had, you know, produced and shot Moonlight, not yet, but would eventually go on to do that. Oh, wow. Um, they were friends of mine from San Francisco. And, uh, cause I worked on a film with James, uh, when we were both young, uh, and Adela had just produced Mark's wife's film, the freebie, Katie Asselton's film, the freebie and needed a nanny. And my wife was a nanny while she was in school. And so she ended up being hired as Mark and Katie's nanny. And then that was how I met Mark Duplass was like, I would just go over to the house as like the nanny's boyfriend to like hang <laughs> out. And, uh, you know, I was like this weird film student that was like hanging out with those guys and Mark and I sort of developed a, a natural friendship out of that. And and then it was after I graduated that we came up with the idea for, for Creep together and set off to make it. So as you know, and I've told you, I fucking love your movies, Creep Part 1 and 2. And I remember reading that you said this movie came about from my experience on Craigslist. Please explain. Uh, well, that actually, I mean, it came from a, that that aspect of it came from a specific interaction that Mark had on Craigslist where he 
uh, was either buying a, a bed or no, he was buying a bed and he, he, uh, answered the ad, set up the time to go buy the bed and the bed frame, went over to his house. This is when Mark was living in New York and nothing was broken down when Mark got there. Like the bed was all still intact and not ready to be moved. And the guy was like, okay, so let's, let's break this down now. And so he ended up spending like four hours at this guy's house that he'd just met on Craigslist, uh, breaking this bed down. And during that time, this guy, like basically was like standing way too close to him and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) telling him all about his, you know, relationship problems. And it was like a weird interaction Mm -hmm. that, you know, I think Mark was trying to get out of as soon as possible. And, you know, it was, so it was like that interaction combined with like the conceit of the movie, my life with Michael Keaton, you know, where he's uh, yeah. Michael Keaton gets cancer and he's, he's filming a movie for his unborn child. And the thought of like someone doing that, but they're lying about that, you know, and, and someone's, someone's, you know, set, set, up that idea is like a way to you know i don't know i don't think i don't think he is consciously aware that he's doing this i think it's just a compulsion but as a way for like a a crazy person to basically like loop you into their orbit and suck you in and you know for me i think it was really exciting because personally you know and i think this is a sort of i think this is something that like i think um I don't know. I think this this is kind of a universal sort of uh, thing that people deal with. Like, you know, when I'm when I find myself in like an awkward interaction or in a dangerous situation with someone, mm-hmm. there's still that very human instinct to like make the other person feel comfortable. And so it was like, what if that like what if that was the conceit of a horror movie? And what what if that was like you know, because in horror movies, there's always this feeling of, or this, you're always fighting against this, like, you know, this, this idea of like, why don't you just get out of the house? Why don't you just get away from that person? You know, why would you turn that corner? Why would you open that door? You know, there's sort of always this, like, you know, it, you know, the, it's kind of a, they're kind of like, end up being these like POV movies for the audience where the audience is like, you know, living vicariously through the, through the characters. And so like that, as the impetus and conceit of the movie, like, like that urge, that basic human urge to make someone else feel comfortable being something that could lead to your death felt very new and exciting to me, you know, with the first movie. Um, and then taking that concept and, you know, realizing that that wasn't necessarily going to work for the second movie and, trying to tie it more into character, specific character, you know, with with what we ended up doing with Desiree Akhavan's character in the second movie and thinking about like the drive of an artist and the drive of someone to, you know, either, you know, put themselves in a position that could be dangerous for the sake of making something. And I think that's something that a lot of maybe documentarians specifically reckon with, you know. Um, and in, in the case of the second movie, for me, it was I, I, like I based her character off this artist, Laurel Nakadate. Do you know who she is? No. She's married to Rick Moody now, and they have a kid, the author, Rick Moody. The guy who wrote The Ice Storm. 
Yeah. The author. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's a really incredible artist. I, I really love her stuff. Uh, she she did a project where she cried every day for a year and took a picture of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you go into a gallery and there's 365 photographs and large photographs of her sobbing. That's um, pretty great. And then she did a series where she, I think, put out Craigslist ads where she would then go have these encounters with strange men, basically going to their houses in their apartments and film herself. Like one was she threw a birthday party for herself with this strange man and, you know, like had candles and stuff. And she would also like dress like a schoolgirl and stuff. Like it would be like, she would definitely be like, you know, pushing some buttons with mm -hmm. it. And um, she did another where she did like a, a, a dance to a Britney Spears song with like one of these guys who lives alone and uh, in New York, you know, and, and so like the danger of being a woman in that situation was a big part of it. Right. And, and so that was sort of like, that was my like jumping off point. Cause I, I, th I just thought that would be like the fact that she was putting herself out there and putting herself in these dangerous situations for the sake of her art, you know, was such a nice, like fun impetus for a horror film that made sense for you know the creep universe or whatever and what were you shooting on for the creep movies we shot those movies on a panasonic hvx i forget which specific model but it's the one that converts to these small little uh sd cards and uh, you know we shot the first one on it simply because it was a camera that jay duplass owned uh he'd shot a little documentary called Kevin about this um, street musician from Austin on it. Um, that's quite good. And uh, we had a shotgun mic and that camera and, and nothing else. And uh, I love the way that camera looks actually. Yeah, it kind of dates same. the material in a, in a nice way. Um, like I like that better than like 4K HD, you know, when it comes to a movie like Creep, you know, like it should look a little messy, right? Yeah, it just makes more sense for your character to have a store-bought camera or something than a... Yeah. When I was rewatching it again this morning, I was thinking about the fact that it should look like found footage and that I thought it was really clever when there were moments like when he tells that fucking terrifying story and you put the camera down and you're like, I need to leave. As a person, my instinct is to drop the camera and leave, but obviously you need to frame it so that you can still see you heading to the door and things like that. I was wondering what those type of discussions were like for plausible camera positions, especially when things get more heightened and intense. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you know, I, like I've said this many times and it does remain like, <laughs> I think one of the, you know, the, the most difficult sort of creative hurdle when it comes to making a found footage movie is having to justify why the camera is on at every moment, you know? And I think when found footage movies fail, I think it's because uh, the filmmakers are maybe not doing that or trying to kind of stretch the, um, uh, you know, the, the reason why the camera might be on at, at any given time, you know? Um, it's something that I was very aware of because like, I think approaching that movie you know, like, at least for me, I was coming at it from like, you know, like, uh, 
a very like uh, on the nose, like like formalist uh, approach, where it was like, you know, there's no way there would ever be music. You know, we'd ever hear like non-diegetic music in the movie. Um, and then also like any time that we click the camera on or it remains on, there has to be a reason for that. And then in terms of camera positioning, obviously there are cheats, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that we had to do and like stretch that. But like, you know, that was something that was being considered with every shot, you know, for sure. And same with the second movie. And honestly, it's kind of one of the reasons why it's been so difficult for us to figure out the third one uh, is, is that conceit. And it's like, it's the gift and the curse of found footage because, you know, it means that we can make these movies very cheaply and it's sort of up to us. Like we're, we're, the, we're the end decider whether, uh, you know, a, a gag or a moment in the film is going to work or not. Um, and we're kind of, you know, throwing paint at the wall and seeing what sticks and some of it doesn't, you know, so it's a little more dangerous and potentially like, you know, uh, you know, just like priming yourself up for disaster than, than with like a big movie, like what I just made where like, like I storyboarded all the kill sequences in the, in the slasher movie I just made for, for Netflix. Cause I had like the time and money and resources to do that. So when I'm shooting those, I, I, I'm not like, I don't feel the same way I feel on a creep movie where um, we're figuring it out in the moment, you know? And I think, you know, what I miss then, uh, which I do feel on the creep movies is when we do have those moments where it does work out, where we are able to like pull off some in camera ballet move uh, that makes sense in terms of the timing of the movie. Like there's no better feeling than that. You know, like the last shot of creep, the last shot of the first movie, which is this extended long take uh, uh, where uh you know, sort of everything culminates by this lakeside. That was a moment that like, we shot that probably six times in different ways over the course of a year and a half. We would go back and reshoot that moment to get it right and to get the sort of dance of it right. Um, because, you know, the initial time we shot it, like like I, the, the, the end, it was a different ending basically. Like my character didn't die at the end of the film. And you know, but what I did love about it was the like silence and was the like way that it forced the audience to kind of lean in, you know? And so it wasn't until we had done a couple of different versions of it that we realized we needed to have a real payoff happen at the end of that. And that this great setup that we had conceived of needed a dangerous, surprising end to, to come full circle, you know? Um, but like, going through the steps of that and 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 sort of the dance associated with that and doing it with like no help you know like like it's literally just me mark and a movie camera and then sometimes chris the editor and and producer of those films who like you know in those moments where i drop the camera or set the camera down like sometimes it'd be like handing it off to chris who'd just be sitting there steadying it you mm -hmm. know um i think uh those are some of the most fulfilling moments I've ever had as a filmmaker in my life. And I'm going to kind of be chasing the dragon of that because you, you, you're, there's, there's more opportunity for failure, but also when it does work out, it's 
kind of miraculous and it's something that you did and represents a closeness and an intimacy you had with your collaborators at the time that like I think is one of the reasons why that film does translate to audiences you know like and I think people see the like people see the the seams you know of the garment with that with those movies and and I think people like it and those it's funny because those were the things that I was most embarrassed of when we put them out in the world and those were the things that I was like thinking people were going to sort of poke poke apart you know and like and like and sort of criticize um and so it was really I don't know heartening to have this sort of like bespoke weird anomaly of a movie be as accepted as it was um you know going forward when i was re-watching them today i realized more than ever the amount of tones and different situations you guys are juggling in the movie obviously you start off with you're very sympathetic where mark is saying he's got cancer and he's recording this movie then you creep in the um peach fuzz mask and then it just gets darker and darker and mark's got that incredible monologue where he's telling the story of when he creeps in on his wife and i was just wondering and then when i was watching again i was seeing it's just literally mark to pass with a halloween mask but it all works so well and it's just you, you're totally sold on it but i was wondering did you have any doubts when you were making it when it was just like you and a camera and mark and a mask thinking is this working are we is this going to be scary is this going to be is it all going to come together yeah i had doubts the entire time i had doubts all the way up until we screened the movie at its world premiere at south by southwest <laughs> Uh, just because I'd never seen anything like it before. You know, I had no sort of like um, references to draw from, you know, because even like other found footage movies like the Blair Witch Project, like that was a movie that very much was a horror movie from the get go and was presented as a horror film, you know, and our movie was one that didn't initially present itself as as scary or like as a horror film we knew it had this weird tension in it and we knew that was something we wanted to be like a driving force of the movie and when we did put it together you know it was the first time it was it, the first cut of the movie based on our initial production it was definitely more of like an indie comedy with like dark elements to it you know and showing it to people and getting their reactions and having folks say like no the thing that like is the most effective element of this movie is the weird tension that you feel between these characters. And that's the thing that you want to expand on. And it being a found footage movie that we made for no money, where we had access to the house that we shot it in. And, you know, we shot it up in this weird little community up in the woods called Crestline outside of Los Angeles. Like we, you know, we could go back and do reshoots. We could mm -hmm. go back and sort of like, fix these things that had maybe been bugging us or hone in on these themes that um uh you know we we wanted to, to 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 expand on and so like you know i think having jason blum come on board from blumhouse you know who's like basically like the modern day roger corman you know like making these low budget genre films with you know lots of different 
first time filmmakers and interesting directors and uh you know marketing them as horror movies and sending them out in the world like he's like having him watch our movie in an early early stage and say like you guys are on to something like that was that was the first time i felt good but i still felt insecure you know what i mean i still felt weird about it and then doing the changes that we did under his supervision and then showing it to people like we did a test screening you know for like 300 people in the valley and like they were all like horror fans you know and like i remember watching those people go in and being like we are fucked like these people are gonna hate this movie you know and we did score super low <laughs> we got a terrible <laughs> score we got like a d minus i mean i think that's like you know that's the other thing is that like you know like i knew i knew always that these movies weren't going to be for everyone you know and so like that's where like i did have the benefit of like it coming out on a platform like netflix where like the engagement or the buy-in was so low like you literally just click it and watch it you know what i mean like it's not something where you had to go like spend money on or go to the cinema or whatever you know where i think there is a little bit more of a you're creating more of an expectation with that arrangement you know um and because it could be accessed in that way i think it became this thing that like people ended up having a personal connection to you know and it is a weird like intimate experience watching that movie right because like the viewer the audience is like the third person in the room basically besides me and mark and you know the world kind of all goes away with those mm -hmm. movies and it's just us and so if you're the other person ideally if you've bought in to the conceit you know you're gonna you're gonna hopefully be experiencing all this you know all, all this stuff alongside the characters um in real time you know that's sort of the that's sort of uh the, the price of that movie and i think some people are down with that and i i knew for a fact that other people were not going to be i mean when we had that big ass 300 person test screening at the end of the movie when spoiler alert my character gets chopped in the head with an axe one kid in the front row stood up and like stuck his hands directly in the air and said fuck yeah and that was like <laughs> that was it that was it you know that you know knowing knowing that we <laughs> we made one fan out of 300 was enough for me at that point to to be like okay well this will be someone's favorite movie you know it won't be everyone's for sure and i watched it overnight again in preparation and that was a big movie man i'm i'm for, for such a strange film I, I remember seeing that in all across the subways in london and stuff and looking back it's got all your kind of weird trademarks of hot tubs <laughs> nudity <Yeah. laughs> awkward intimacy and oversharing and yeah. then watching it again and i was like how the fuck did he get chasing Schwartzman to put on a prosthetic penis and stuff it was just such a again it felt such a coop in a way yeah yeah i mean you know we he jason came on board very late in the game like we were having trouble casting that 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 character and the fact that he showed up when he did is kind of one of the miracles of my life you know because he 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 he'd only read actually the first half of the script before he said yes <laughs> before the night gets really weird right 
and he called me and was like this is great let's do it and i was like i was like you should finish the script <laughs> like and 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 i you know finish the script and let me know if you're still cool with it um and he was and um you know that was the first time i'd ever directed anything that i'd written you know creep was entirely improvised so having that experience and then also making that movie in as short a period of time as we did with as small of a crew as we did um was just like a, a really important like stepping stone for me because like it 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 wasn't that far removed from the experience of making the creep movies like i you know i had a crew but it was also like one dp one first ac one gaffer you know like a lot a lot of these one focus puller you know like as 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 small and intimate as you could make it you know i, I think the crew is maybe 20 people if if you know including the actors um so and we shot it all at night so it really did feel like we were like making some like see we were like kids staying up too late you know what i mean and it's that feeling of like delirium that comes when you're like up at three o'clock in the morning just like giggling with your friends you know that's the way i felt making that movie it sort of made the once again like the rest of the world went away and we were you know up in adam carolla's house <laughs> in the middle of the night shooting this uh movie with prosthetic dicks and and it was also the first time i'd like scene realized a moment that like came from my head you know that i saw in my head when i was writing something and then and then i'm on a movie set seeing actors dancing around with their with their dicks out and and uh i almost like cried that day it was so beautiful <laughs> for me and how was it moving on to a big netflix movie which feels like a really great teen slasher movie it feel it really feels in the spirit of scream and all those early late 90s early noughties movies which i generally love with no irony i think they're really great yeah no me too i i i you know i grew up with those movies and you know outside of like sort of going on a deeper journey into cinema and like you know you know the fact that i was like i was i was watching movies like scream and i know what you did last summer along with like you know movies like fargo or wings of desire or like you know these kind of other movies that like sort of represented like formative you know years of my my movie watching time and uh uh you know i i sort of have always felt like my enjoyment of film like whether it's considered highbrow or lowbrow or whatever it's like those things aren't mutually exclusive to me it's like either like it or i don't like it you know no good is good good is good yeah yeah i think i think every almost every great director i know really enjoys genre movies yeah apart from the one time i had a chat with rick alverson who pretty much only wanted to talk to him about movies from russia in the early 1930s and i felt like a total doofus and could not engage with him <laughs> at all wow. for an entire interview. I love, I love his stuff. I love his stuff so much.
one of my missions for next year is I really want to reach out to the secretly secretly Canadian people and see if I can start doing some screenings of uh, Jason Molina concerts and stuff they all seem to have in the archive. I don't know if you follow on the on the songs of higher page. Every so often they'll just put a really cool VHS shot concert yep. clip or something, and I'm like, yeah, well. Uh, I'll put you in touch with Chris Swanson from Secretly. He's uh, he's a good friend. He did the music supervision on the overnight. Oh, amazing! He's one of the reasons why we were able to get uh, a the Sparks song that's in the movie on there, um, which is hard because you know with the indie movie you're always just you know lowballing <laughs> all all these musicians trying to you know get some good music included in your movie and that's you know a big song and it's produced by Giorgio Moroder and so it was uh you know it involved a lot of sort of navigation to to get that in the movie and Chris was able to get it for us and I'm always bugging Chris about Jason Molina stories and little little tidbits I'm a huge Jason Molina fan he's probably my my favorite songwriter of all time and yeah man uh, has been the, there for me he's on it, the wall just in the corner you can amazing there we go yeah yeah i was i was thinking about him a lot because uh you know it was just september 11th and he wrote that so, there's a couple things related to september 11th with him one of which is he has that song the gray tower uh which is you know the greatest i think piece of art made in uh, about 9 11 and it wasn't even written after 9 11 it was written before 9 11 did you know that that song no what what record is that on it's a single it's on the it's on the collected singles they released it on the right. collected singles release that they did but it, it's you listen to that song and you read the lyrics of that song and it is a like i'm getting chills just even thinking about it it is it is a it is it is it, it is everything related to what happened that day and it's about um, the fact that it's about america the fact that it's, you know, it's talking about, you know, it's not just evil that stalks the American sky. It's and and it's been waiting for us its whole life. And like just basically talking about like what happened that day as an inevitable energy that was going to come upon us at some point. And it's like it's 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 absolutely cosmic. Wow. Uh, and then the other thing that's related to 9-11 that's crazy, including, you know, also Will Oldham, is you, you, you knew that over the weekend of 9-11 from September 9th to September 12th, Will Oldham, Jason Molina, and Alastair Roberts were recording the Amalgamated Sons of Sons Rest, of Rest. Album. Yeah, crazy. And, and there's a song that's unreleased from that album that you can find if you google like jason molina 9 11 2000 that is like is actually his reaction song that is right. like it's one it's from those sessions it's really beautiful and then there's that i mean there's that other amazing 10 minute song that was released on the it was released on a split with my morning jacket called translation that's like a 10 minute jam from those guys that i like that song is in my top 10 favorite songs of all time i listen to that song all the time um i remember i used to go see um jason every time he played in london doing these like really intimate shows and then something happened where i didn't i 
the follow-up album to Magnolia Electric Company was great. And then they became Magnolia Electric. And then I slightly dropped off and I stopped going to his shows. And it's one of the biggest regrets where I think I was just an impatient listener and like, this doesn't sound like Didn't It Rain or Magnolia Electric, you know, with the owl on the front and it's kind of totally neglected Josephine, which is incredible. And yeah, yeah, I just wish I went to more shows, man. That was... uh... I have the same regret. I have the same regret. And it's, and it's, I think it's because, uh, we didn't know he was sick and I thought he was going to be around forever, you know? And I always think about him now when I'm like considering whether or not I'm going to go see a show of like, you know, Nick Cave or Bob Dylan or some of these people that are like really, really fucking important to me, you know, and are like voices that I carry with me, you know, almost every other day, Will being one of them too. Um, where like, I'm like, no, I have to go see the show. Like I have to go. Cause, and part of it is because like, I've had tickets to see Jason and didn't go, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. I, I don't know what was with me. I, I know you, you take, you take people for granted in a way you take your kind of heroes for granted and musicians and well, people in life in general, to an extent, I guess it's just part of being a person, but yeah. You know what else I didn't do, which is the biggest. I have two other biggest regrets. One of them, this is fucking stupid as fuck. My friend had tickets for the Stooges performing Raw Power in its entirety, old school lineup. Eh, what the fuck? That's just <laughs> so, that, that's stupid. And that Funhouse is my favorite. Again, Funhouse <laughs> is my favorite rock and roll LP of all time. Period. Oh my god. And I, I don't know why my friend had like spare tickets and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, is that album that good for you? Is, is, is it really? No, I tell you what my issue was. I had the stupid issue that they demoted Ron Ashton to bass, which I think is blasphemy, even though the other guitarist is a fucking legend in his own right. And then uh-huh. all my friends went and I was like, how was it? And it was like, it was fucking insane. My ears are ringing. We were next to Jim Jarmusch. Nick Cave was there. <laughs> Just like everyone you'd imagine. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, you know, was Tom Waits there? Maybe. It was just like yeah. ev- every indie rock and roll god was there. Just yeah. pure mania. And I, I didn't go. It's so fucking stupid. But yeah, let's talk quickly about your new horror movie. How is it working with all these young people? How is it working the Netflix perimeters? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it was it was interesting because, you know, like as I've gone through my career making movies, you know, you start to get like bigger opportunities presented to you. And like this was a, this was a script that was sent to me by this producer, Dan Cohen, who I'd become friends with. And he was a big fan of The Overnight. And we'd been trying to kind of find something to work on together. And, you know, they sent it to me and it was like, you know, like it definitely felt like it was Netflix checking a few boxes in terms of like, 
their audience and their their algorithm you know their uh their all-powerful algorithm as yeah in terms of, like what people actually watch please curb the hot tubs <laughs> right right <laughs> but at the same time it was like you know there was a like there was an intimacy and a sweetness that I found in the characters for sure. And it felt like an opportunity to inject that into a horror movie and, and make a horror movie where, you know, it felt modern and contemporary, but also didn't feel like you were having, you had characters that were like completely self-satisfied or like, you know, um, like woke for wokeness sake or whatever, you know what I mean? Like it felt like whatever, whatever contemporary elements were like built into the movie uh, coming from character. Um, and it's also like based on a YA book who's by like, you know, this woman who's a romance author for the most part. And this was her first horror movie or her first horror novel that she'd written. Um, and so for me, it was like a chance to make something on a bigger scale with folks like James Wan, you know, who like, you know, I have massive respect for. And like, I don't know if you've seen Malignant. Hugely. Yeah. But have you seen Malignant? Love Malignant. Yeah. Fucking insane. Yeah. It's, I got, I got the DMs. Everyone was like, this is like every horror movie altogether. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the fact that someone like that is able to like, you know, go do the, do the, the Hollywood thing and make the big Hollywood movies, but also like, you know, that like Malignant rests in his heart that entire Absolutely, time. And that, yeah. like, he's, he's making those movies so that he can have the money and access to be able to make a movie like that is just so cool. And like, I, I feel, I feel that in a big way. And so, you know, uh, I was just really heartened by like the fact that like Netflix was like, yes, you can, you can cast kids who don't like, you know, look like normal teen heartthrob people. You know, they all have like very interesting faces and are like fully inhabiting their characters. And then they let us shoot it like, you know, on like in like two, three, five with like these old ass lenses that were super finicky. And like, you know, we like, you know, so many blown takes because of focus, because we were using these, these old ass, uh, super primes on the movie. And, um, uh, you know, uh, and then I think like, you know, in, in watching it now and thinking about it now and like, thinking like, what is like me in it? Like, what is the thing that's like been able to cut through all that stuff? And for me, it is the like, sweetness of it and it's that you know that like there are characters that i can get behind and sort of presents a worldview that i can get behind while still hopefully you know delivering all the like you know fun expected tropes of the genre you know and like like i read the cold open and i was like oh this is something i want to do like i want to craft this you know scene yeah this opening scene it was like your kills were fantastic oh thanks man yeah and and being able to like you know, like make, you know, do those kills, which for the most part are practical, you know, and like, uh, and, and, and conceive of those and, and put those into motion was just really exciting to me. So for me, like at the end of the day, when I'm making shit, like a, a big part of it is the relationships and the collaboration that I have with, with, you know, not only like my overlords at Netflix, but also like my producers in a big way. Cause those are the people that I'm going to be, you know, with for like three years. Um, and so, you know, it's just like, you know, it's a movie that's going out into the, into the deep, deep ocean of the, the streaming services. And so it'll have whatever life it has. But for me, outside of like, 
what it did for me as a as a filmmaker and that it was the first time I, I really got to like craft visual sequences you know which I've never been able to do like all my other movies have been like okay you have very little money go make something with it you know um so that was really nice but then also what it ended up being was you know we we we, we got shut down before we were going to do a reshoot right before the pandemic and so I ended up having to finish the entire movie in post and so it became like the thing that I could focus on during the pandemic where like, it felt like the world was falling down and the world was, you know, falling down in some way. And, and, you know, so I could still work and, you know, be creative and like take care of my kids, you know, during this time of like great uncertainty. So, you know, that's the thing that it's always going to kind of represent for me is this like weird time in my life where like, you know, I, I felt probably the most scared I've ever felt ever. And I had an anchor then to be able to focus my energy on and to distract me uh, from. And so, um, you know, that's the thing that I'm, that I'm like, that's like the gift of that movie that's, that's, you know, kept on giving to me. And then I hope it's something that people can, you know, discover and, and, and have a relationship with. I mean, I think they wanted a John Hughes slasher movie and they ended up getting like a Richard Linklater slasher movie. Cause it is just kind of like a hangout. <laughs> That's even movie. better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought um, the kids performances were already great. I really liked all the characters. They all felt very natural. And as you said, it, they, they didn't look like the cast of euphoria or something yeah. like that. They looked like a yeah. small town young people yeah and like something like euphoria definitely has its place but like i that wasn't my high school experience you know <laughs> Same, huge regrets from my childhood when i watched euphoria yeah yeah final question um when you're talking about getting advice from people i was wondering what advice you took from the duplass brothers who are absolutely indie godfathers yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I would say it like, it's not like direct advice. Like it's something that Mark specifically told me at one point, but it was advice in, in the way I saw him, the way I saw Mark and Jay, but you know, mostly Mark operate in the, in, in the, the, the industry and in this like weird ever-changing landscape. And it's that, you know, first and foremost, you know, creative freedom is the thing that you're seeking when it comes to any of these projects and being in control of your own destiny is the thing that you're, you're, you're sort of striving towards with each of these, because, you know, there are so many circumstances you can find yourself in where you're facilitating or servicing other people's ideas, you know, and, you know, you want to, you want to, you, if you're given the opportunity to create something from that's born out of your own heart and your own brain, you want to protect that at all costs. And, you know, you want to surround yourself with people you trust and who see the world in a similar way as you and are going to be there to support you, you know, um, on a, on a, on a human level, as well as on a creative level. And, you know, he's shown me and sort of like spoiled me in the sense that like, that's my, that's my baseline in terms of like whoever I'm going to be working with. Like if I, if I don't have that level of intimacy where like, I know you, I know your kids, I know your heart, like it's going to be very hard for me to be able to work with you. Cause in order to do this work, at least for me, I need to be completely vulnerable and I need to find myself in a situation with someone where, you know, 
I'm allowed to fail, right? And that not be the end of the relationship and failure is inevitable. And then it's something that we work through and build upon in the, the, the service of trying to figure out, you know, uh, the best solution for, for whatever you're, you're making, you know? And so, um, you know, I'm really grateful to have found that and, and I'm, you know, I, I feel that definitely as like, if there is a through line and all the different shit that I've made, like it's, it's that, and it's, and it's also that, like, I think also translating in terms of like the characters that I've been able to play with and how they interact with each other. And, you know, I'm happy with that kind of being an anomaly in, in, in the, in the genre world and in the horror mo- world for sure. Yeah. And I feel very lucky. I've been able to sort of play, you know, in that way. There you go, me and Patrick Bryce. There's someone inside your house is out now on Netflix. Do it for Halloween. Okay, as always, thanks again for listening. Thanks to Ewan Hinslewood, my engineer. Thanks to Joshua Eustace, who made all the beautiful music. And you guys for listening. See you next time. <laughs>